Well, uh, I have a lot to say, so prepare your hearts. It's going to get intense. It's been that way every week for the last eight weeks, and uh, I'm ready for whatever the Lord has. So first, let me say I am glad that all of you are here, and if you have not been following along in the last eight weeks of the journey of what's been happening in my life, about eight weeks ago, I got radically touched by the Lord. I have a, had a seven-hour conversation with God in the night that was very detailed and really dealt with a lot of things in my own heart. Since that time, so many things have changed in my life. In particular, I have come to this place where I'm questioning everything. And I'm not questioning everything from a religious defiance position, like a rebellious position. I'm questioning everything because I want to know my motives and why I'm doing what I'm doing. I want to question the way that I'm thinking and the way that I'm processing about other people. I want to question why I do certain things the way that I do them. I was extremely convicted and dealt with by the Lord with an incredible amount of love and compassion, but it also hurt. And it hurt in a good way, in a hard way, but it hurt for a good reason. Namely, the Lord said that I had selfish ambition in every area of my life. And that really broke me. Like I really genuinely wept over that because I don't want to have selfish ambition. I want to love like Jesus loves. And I've been walking with the Lord for a long time. You know, I got radically born again in 2003. So really, you know, I'm sorry, 1993. Yeah. I always get my 90s and 2000s mixed up and the 80s. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, 27 years ago, 27, 28 years ago, I got radically rocked by the Lord. And now I'm about to turn 50 and God's digging deeper inside of me. God's showing me things about myself that I never knew were there. And if he didn't shine his light and pull back the veil, I would not have seen them. And so the last eight weeks, I'm getting up here and telling on myself nonstop, and it hurts, and it's not comfortable. And some of the things that I say, it's like, oh, my gosh, should I really say that? And I actually don't want to say some of the things that I say. But the Lord's not going to let me keep it in, and he wants me to say them because the hope is that my personal journey and what God's doing in me is that he would begin to do that inside of you. And so I get to be the one that self-deprecates first, and my life gets to be an example in hopes that you would do the same. Really what it is is that God would dig deep inside of all of us so that we could love better and look more like him. You know, people say, I love this church. I love how much this church loves. And, you know, if we think we're unified and loved, we're nothing compared to the way that Jesus does it. And so what the Lord's doing is he's digging deeper inside of all of us to make us look more like him. We can't just go through the motions of Christianity anymore. All of us should be in a constant process of growth. And that growth shouldn't be shame and it shouldn't be condemning and it shouldn't be beating you down. It should be causing you to bloom and blossom like a beautiful garden. It should cause you to become more of who you were always designed and destined to be. That's all that I really want. And so there's no shame. But there is an honest transparency. There is an openness. There is a reality of saying, look, this is in my life, and I don't want it, and I want to get it out, and I want to help you get it out, just as the Lord's helping me get it out. So today is going to really be a continued journey of discovery. It's going to have stories, and I'm going to be real, and I'm going to be raw about things as the Lord leads, and sometimes it really hurts. And in my own mind, I think, well, maybe... You know, I shouldn't say these things because what will you think about me? Or maybe you would think that as a pastor, I should never be that way. Or maybe you wouldn't come back. But the Lord says the only way that I'm going to kill this thing in my own life is to own it and self-deprecate it in the hopes that you would do the same because we cover and hide so many things. Like last week, I talked about opinions. Jesus never gave his own opinion. Jesus was not opinionated. See, an opinion is knowledge of something ba not necessarily based on fact or truth. It's what we think, but it doesn't have truth behind it or fact based on it. And we can see things in other people's lives that may be right, but not righteous. And so if you're a highly opinionated person, you have to recognize and realize what a real opinion is. Is it you or is it the Lord? Because anything the Lord says and does will be based on fact and truth. So if I'm sizing you up based on what I think an opinion, 
then it's not based on fact and truth. In the natural, I could see something, but I don't know the whole picture the way that the Lord does. The Lord knows everything, and he sees everything. And so oftentimes, opinions are assumptions. They're things that I assume about you based on something that I either believe is happening or even can see that's happening in your life, but I don't know the whole truth about the situation. So Jesus was never opinionated. He only said and did what he saw the Father do. And the Lord began to reveal that in my own heart, I have all these opinions and judgments inside of me, things that I don't necessarily say. And just because you don't say it, even if you think it to the Lord, you're guilty just the same. Now, you wouldn't say it because you don't want to ramrod some people and hurt some people. And so you keep it on the inside. But if you're keeping it on the inside, even then God sees it and wants to deal with it and will keep us back from unity. A lot of times I have these opinions inside of me or I pass judgments inside of me that I don't say, but it keeps me back from fully loving you the way that Jesus loves you. It keeps me back from truly being united with you because I don't like that thing about you. And then over the course of time, I become really, really good, especially if you've been a Christian a long time, disguising it in religiosity. I can quote you a good scripture to correct you, but I'm not actually really loving you. And there's all kinds of subtleties that we have inside of our hearts that we don't talk about. And we hide it in the guise of being spiritual. We can know a lot of word and not know Jesus. You can know a lot about the Lord, but not know him. And Christians are master manipulators at using the word and disguising ourselves. It makes me look good. And I know how to fix you. And all the while, in my own heart, I have all these issues that I don't talk about or I protect or preserve or hide. And so that night when the Lord said, I had selfish ambition. And I said, Lord, where do I have selfish ambition? He said, every area of your life, I started weeping. But it caused me to begin to look at every area of my life. And so what you all have been experiencing, or if you're just visiting now, you can go back and listen, but it's been eight weeks of a complete life change. The way I read the Bible, the way I love people, the way I love my wife, the way I act, the way I treat my son, and all I do is get up and tell stories now about what journey God has me on in hopes that God would take you on the same journey. And there's a lot of reasons for it, all right? And so today I want to start off with the scripture in Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to read a little block of scriptures first from the New King James, but then I'm going to compare it to the Passion Translation, and I'm going to do that so that you can see it both ways, and that's what I often do in my personal study time with the Lord. I like the Passion Translation because it really breaks it down in a way that I'm like, yes, that's exactly the way that I would say it or think it should be said, but the New King James also brings a different insight and understanding, like using the word judge. So in this scripture right here, if you actually study this word out in the Greek, it isn't like I'm looking at you with a healthy measurement because I love you and I want to, to really bring life to you. The word judge here is the word condemn. So basically the premise is, is condemn not so that you won't be condemned. Because most of the time our judgment is condemnation, but we don't want to admit that. And we're subtly condemning people inside of our hearts while we think we're judging them, usually with our own opinions and wrong motives and intentions. So what I really want to do is check our hearts and our motives and intentions. Because we jump on all these bandwagons for causes for the nation and the White House and the, the racial divide and all these things. And we want, to, we want to correct that while all the while we have things inside of us that need to be corrected. And God says, if you don't get corrected first, you won't be able to bring correction there. And it starts with this scripture. Because we're going to get to the plank and the speck here in a minute. And I'm going to teach you something about that you've probably never known. I don't care how many times you've heard it. But it starts here. Most of the time, when I'm seeing something in you that I don't like, I'm passing judgment, which is ultimately condemnation. I'm condemning you in my heart. Listen, the night that I had my encounter eight weeks ago, some of you may not remember it or have not heard it. But let me tell you this one part. God took me into a third-person viewpoint of my own life. And, he wa and I watched myself and especially how I dealt with my wife. 
I saw my selfishness. I saw, you know, my pride. I saw silent treatments. I saw self-preservation. All these issues that were inside my life. And I'm watching myself throughout my days from God's viewpoint. Right. Good. And when I saw myself the way God saw me, I said to myself, I am a fool. And God said, you are a fool. But remember, he said, I use fools just like you. I turn fools into gold. And in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. And then he said, now let's talk about all those other people you think are a fool. Now, it's not so much y'all per se, per se. It's really more like famous Christians, people that I know that I used to run with or have run with that I feel like are prideful and building kingdoms unto themselves and I don't really like, but I'm friends with them. These are the people that I, I really don't care for, but I somewhat know or I've known or I'm harboring judgment against them and they're using their gifts and religious platforms and using terminologies that, I, that they have no idea what they're talking about and it makes me mad. Oh, I'm not the only one. And he said, let's talk about this person. He said, yes, they are a fool just like you. And I'm using them just like I use you. What God began to show me was this, this concept of that in my heart, my opinions that I'm quick to have, especially if you're high thinkers and judgers and highly opinionated, and highly critical, those thoughts that you have are more often not from the Lord. In fact, most of the time, if not all the time, they're not the way God sees. But you got to own it instead of protect it. Because the first step to getting healed from it is to own it. So Jesus would talk about owning it. Let's keep reading verse 2. Matthew 7, verse 2. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. We'll just read through this first section here. It'll be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not consider the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So first realize, more often than not, our judgment is a condemnation. It's not coming from the place of a father's heart with perfect love with no expectation of something in return. So we tend to measure and correct with the mindset of what can I get back, or if I fix you, you'll do something back for me. This has been in my life in a lot of areas. And I realized it only recently because I tend to do a lot of marriage counseling and I tend to meet with a lot of people. And many times I've said, you know, I'm just going to get you healthy. And once you get healthy, then you can turn around and start getting other people healthy here in the church. I'm going to fix you so that you can be used by God here together with me. And though I might be right and I can understand that, you can't really help somebody else till you get help and healthy first. I get that. But if my motive and my intention is to fix you in any subtle way so that you can be used by God here, it's erroneous. It's like saying, I want to really learn to love so that I can prophesy really well. It's sick. And it's deceptive and it's selfish ambition. Because what if God's calling you somewhere else? What if God calls you to do something different than that? What if you don't do it the way I think you should do it? Now, I didn't see that thing. It wasn't like I was intentionally deceptive. I'm just using it as an example of how many times our relationships are based on networking. We network our relationships for what I can get back from you or what you can get from somebody else. And don't think it's not prevalent in our lives. So I'm going to tell him myself because my friend is here today and it reminded me of this story. So I went to buy a safe from a local safe manufacturer here in town. I didn't know them, but I said, if there's a, safe ma- a gun safe manufacturer in town, I'm going there. So I went there, and I struck up a relationship with the owner who's here today. And I told him that I own coffee shops. And he's like, you should have brought us all coffee. I said, oh, no, no, no. I didn't, I didn't 
I didn't bring you all coffee because, you know, if I would have brought you coffee, then in my heart, I would have expected a discount for the safe. And he said, it's all business. It's all right. I mean, you know, we're, we're, I'm like, no, you don't understand. And he didn't. He was super kind about it. But this is the level of things inside my own heart God's dealing with. Because you don't know how much coffee I've given away in this town and how many discounts I've gotten. No, you see, God is cutting out to another level of the way that we love and care. Because what if I would have brought all coffee and then I would have demanded to pay full price? Because if somebody wants to give me a discount, they should do it because they felt the compassion in their heart to do it, not because I swayed them with a free cup of coffee. Sorry. Do you understand? It's perfect love. These are the subtlest little things, guys. We're so, man, do we use, we even use Jesus' name to work angles. How much more could God give us if we didn't do things like that? How much more could God do? You know, I posted this on Facebook where I said, you know, God always loves us no matter what. And when he says never, he means it and it actually happens. And the scripture was, I'll never leave you or forsake you. But did you know that that scripture's in the context of money? He says, why are you worried about money? Don't you know I will never leave you or forsake you? And you don't realize how much money has a grip and material possessions and things and angles and discounts and stuff works inside of our hearts. This is one of many areas that we work those types of things. Ask my wife most of the time, and she's even correcting me, and I didn't even realize it. She's like, how come every time we go somewhere, you're so quick to tell everybody you're a pastor and you own a coffee shop? It wasn't like I knew even what I was doing. Because the minute you realize you know not what you're doing is the minute you find forgiveness. It doesn't give you a pass. It just reveals the level of deception you were in. The measurement. What I see in you that I don't see in me. Accurate or inaccurate measurements. I've not properly measured myself while at the same time I think I'm properly measuring you. Let me help you to understand something about the speck and the plank. If you study this out, the speck is actually defined as straw or chafe, a twig. There's a twig in your eye. And all the while in my eye, I have a better word than plank is the word beam. Think of a cross beam that's holding up the roof of this building, a giant metal beam. And that metal beam is actually holding up a house that I have built in my heart. So all the while, I'm looking at your little straw while I have built a mighty fortress in my house, and I think you have a house of cards. I built an entire fortress of beams in me foundations and truths and opinions and motives and intents and thoughts of my heart of a lifetime from the day I was born my whole life your whole life you have built beams inside of you and all the while I'm looking at your little twig your little straw and God says the way you should see it in somebody else is as a twig and straw the way they should see it for themselves is a beam. And so I, we have these belief systems and mindsets and opinions and all these things that we built inside of us from our childhood all through our experiences. 
walls and hurts and pains and all these presumptions about other people that we think and that we feel. And then when we go to deal with it in somebody else, we haven't dealt with it in us. So he says, basically deal with it first in you so that you can then go and help that person. So I'm not dealing with it in me so that I can get your spec out. I'm dealing with it in me so that when God provides the relationship, I can do it with honesty and sincerity and perfect love. So, for example, my friend and I had a what? I don't know. It felt like a couple-hour conversation. We sat and talked forever. And my wife was like, where are you? Text me. I was late. And then she says, let me guess. You struck up a conversation with the owner. I'm like, yes, I did. But then we had an encounter. We prayed. God showed up, I prayed for him, and, and it was pure. Yeah. Yeah. There was no angle. Yeah. There was nothing to get back. It was done right in perfect love. And so let me just show it to you real quick. I want to read it to you in the Passion Translation. Refuse to be a critic full of bias towards others, and judgment will not be passed on you. For you'll be judged by the same standard that you've used to judge others. The measurement you use on them will be used on you. Why would you focus on the flaw in someone else's life and yet fail to notice the glaring flaws of your own life? How could you say to your friend, let me show you where you're wrong, when you're guilty of even more? You're being hypercritical and a hypocrite. First, acknowledge your own blind spots and deal with them. That's what we're going to talk about today, is acknowledging and dealing with them. Because at some point, it doesn't matter what anyone does to you or how how you get treated. It doesn't make it right, but God has a way of bringing vengeance. God has a way of bringing justice. And Jesus, when he was being assailed on, in hostility against his life for doing nothing wrong, never harbored bitterness, anger, false judgment against them. He never got offended. He never fought back. In fact, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, which then gave room for God to fight his battles. And I'm going to show you something powerful about that today. He said, how can you say to your friend, let me show you where you're wrong while you're guilty even more. You're being hypercritical. Acknowledge your blind spots, deal with them, and then you'll be capable of dealing with the blind spot of your friend. Does God want to use you to deal with blind spots in other people's life? Yes. But first, who does he need to deal with? And let me help you with something else. This isn't a similar comparison. It's not like, well, you, I can see a porn issue or a lust issue in your life, and I don't have that. That's not the way this scripture works. The way it works is, in any area of my life that I'm not loving like Jesus loved, I may not have the same. See, we write it off. Like, I can pick this out of your own life because I don't have an issue. But God's saying, if I'm harboring anything inside of me that's not of him, I still have false beams inside of me. Now, it helps if I've overcome something to help you overcome it. But it doesn't give me an out in the other areas. You understand? It's not like, because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little yeast causes the whole pack of dough to rise. So it's not like I can say, well, you have this one issue. Let Let me deal with that in you while I still have all these other issues in me. God wants us to deal with the speck in other people's lives, but he wants us to first work on our own hearts and our own lives and to love like he loves. So we have to recognize our own shortcomings and not be hypocritical. And we have to do it with perfect love for us and for others. We have to measure with the Father's love. So let me give you an example. My son, we got a birthday present yesterday. And, and I'm just telling stories from my own life. Even Amber's like, oh, man, you're going to tell that story? I'm like, yeah, because it's relevant. My son, we bought a birthday gift for somebody yesterday. We went to two birthday parties, and we bought it. Amber and the kids went to the store and bought a gift. And when they came home, the one gift disappeared. <laughs> now, my son's six, by the way. So the gift disappeared. 
And so Amber's like, Zion, you know his gift? He's eating his Lunchable? No, no idea where it is. She's looked for like 30 minutes around that. 30 minutes everywhere around the house. She's looking for the gift. And I'm like not paying attention. I think they just lost the gift. And then I asked Amber some questions like, did y'all bring it in? Yeah, we brought it in and he took it out. I said, all right. I said, let me go look. I already knew where to look. So I go and I look under the bed, wrapped up in a t-shirt, and there's the gift, ripped open. Only halfway because he felt bad, that's right. But it was still open. And oh man, and it was like a straight bold-faced lie, right? Like a straight bold-faced lie, lying to Amber. So I come out and I say to my son, I'm like, son, is this the gift? And oh my gosh, he starts bawling his eyes out. So convicted. Now, this was a real conviction. This wasn't like, I'm going to whip his butt and he's scared of the beating. Because I don't do that. I spank, but I, I'm very reserving with that. And I don't do it very often. There's a lot of other consequences. But what am I really looking for? I'm looking for real conviction. Okay, because I could have beat him, to, I could have spanked him hard, and then he'd have gotten over it in 20 minutes and not changed. And will there be some consequences? Yes, but what was I really looking for? Did he really feel bad for what he did? And if he did, we've got something really good to work with. Because conviction is one of the best things that you could teach your children. And forgiveness. Like there's times that Amber and I, we've gotten into some disagreements and children are extremely sensitive to that. And my, there, I remember a time my daughter says, stop fighting. I said, we're not fighting. We're not fighting. No, I'm like, we're, I said, pause. So we paused our little disagreement. And I said, Cadence, your mom and dad's, we're not fighting. I know it's intense right now. But we love each other, and we're always going to work to forgiveness with each other. Because I also have to teach my children conflict resolution, and that it's okay to have conflict as long as it always leads to forgiveness and repentance. So when my son's bawling his eyes out, I know some people are like, that would have deserved a spanking. And he said, are you going to spank me? I said, no. But you're not going to get your iPad or TV for a little while. Oh, no, don't take that away. Ah! It's not that hard with kids. It's really not that hard. And it doesn't mean that I, that I would not spank him, but it, it's something that I have to do from the Lord, and I have to make the decisions from the Father's heart. And then I'm thinking to myself, man, he just told a bold-faced lie, and the Lord's like, how many lies have you told or lies are you protecting inside your heart? And he's not, it's not like I'm, it's hard to put into words, but it's not like, God's comparing me with the six-year-old. It's more like God saying, look, I want you to see how I deal with you. Because if you don't have a proper understanding of how the Lord deals with you, which we're going to get to here in a minute, we're going to talk about remorse, we're going to talk about grief, and we're going to talk about feeling bad. Because it's okay to feel bad. None of us ever want to feel bad in this culture. Right? We never want to feel bad about something. We always want to feel good. We don't want to feel any grief. But God designed us to feel grief for a purpose. And so he was feeling grief. So why did I need to keep adding to more of it by beating his hiney? And he'll have some consequences, but I know that he felt bad. And we will teach him. He will learn. And that's the human nature thing. He is not. And what happened? You said something like... Uh, you're still a good boy or something like that. He goes, no, I'm not a good boy. He said, no, you are. You have a great heart. You just, you just made a bad choice. Because the lie of the devil will be to put that innately inside of you. You are bad. But it's human nature which human nature needs to be crucified. See, most people don't even know what they're saved from. When God saved you, it wasn't to have a better life. You can get a better life, but when God saves you and rescues you, he saves you from a life of selfish ambition and human nature and self-destructive ways that we live for ourselves that will kill us. Yeah. 
He saved us from hell. He saved us from destruction and a sinful life. Not so you can live the American dream. So refuse to be a critic full of bias towards others and judgment will not be passed on you. You'll be judged by the same, same standard. The measurement you use will be used on you. Why would you focus on the flaw in someone else's life and yet fail to notice the glaring flaws of your own? Opinionated critics will receive, will receive the harshest judgment and condemnation. Why? Because this is the way we judged others. Our judgment must be based on fact and truth and can only follow areas we have dealt with with ourselves. So one of the standards of measurement that I use in people's lives is, or in my own life, to make decisions is, is it illegal, immoral, unethical, or unbiblical? Now, each of those things meets, mean something. Is it illegal, immoral, unethical, or unbiblical? If it's not any of those things, it's probably okay, but not always. Because you can be right and not righteous. And many times the Holy Spirit will call you. Now, the Holy Spirit's not going to call you to do something unbiblical or illegal or immoral. But there's times that I can look at somebody and say, man, that person has this in their life. And I'm to let them walk this process out so that he can deal with them instead of me trying to fix them. This actually makes you biased towards yourself. When you're picking out things in other people's lives and have planks in yours or beams in yours, you're biased towards yourself and against them. It's not perfect love the way Jesus loved. This is why you have to refuse to be a biased critic. Otherwise, it will be harsher for us. How can you measure others? How you measure others is the way you will be measured. And it keeps us divided. So we're not really united because I have all these subtle things inside my heart. You know, like I'm a part of a pastor's group that came together during COVID. We just met for a lunch and there's all these pastors from all these denominations and all these different churches. And the truth is, is if I really think about it, I probably have an issue with every single one of them. And the reality is, is they probably have an issue with me. But for the sake of saving face and the sake of unity, let's have a lunch. While we network. But we don't want to talk about that. But the truth is we need to. And we need to say, look, if I don't deal with these things inside my heart that I have towards other people, because re remember to Jesus, what you feel and think on the inside is the same as if you said it. That's why he said, oh, if you even look at a girl wrong, you're convicted, you or a guy, it's adultery in your heart. But we have all kinds of adultery in our hearts. Now, let's not feel shameful about it. Let's own it, self-deprecate it, get it out and say, Lord, I don't want it and I want you to deal with it. And I'm going to talk to you about how we deal with it today. All right? First is, you have to see Jesus. You have to see the person, the man Jesus not just know about him. He is a reality. If it's not about him, then we can formulate all these other religious protocols yeah, yeah. around him, but it's not him. Yeah. Right? Like I wrote a bunch of things down. I wrote down the word and I wrote down the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to talk to you about those. But if Jesus isn't front and center, 2 Corinthians 3 talks about the veils taken away to behold him. And if you behold him, you're transformed from glory to glory. So here I am about to turn 50, and I went from one measurement of glory to another because I've been looking for him and looking at him. But I didn't really know the depth of what was inside of me until I saw him. Right. And when I see him, I see an accurate picture of myself. So in a minute, I'm going to take you to Hebrews 4 and talk about the word and how the word exposes and reveals everything inside of us. But the main thing is, is you've got to see Jesus, not just know about him. We can go to church our whole life, go through all the motions, and we don't know him. We know about him, but we don't know him. We shouldn't be coming to church to just learn about him. We should be coming to church to see him and to know him. That's why five points and principles and behavior modification will never change you. But one glance and one encounter with the king will change you forever. Right? So Jesus, you know, I remember Brad came 
oh, a long time ago, and I was like, I'm going to show Brad. I want Brad to, you know, he's basically an overseer in a lot of ways, holds me accountable, part of this church. This Brad McClendon, for those of you that don't know him, he comes here a lot, and he's a real good friend and friend of the church, really prophetic, really loves Jesus, really embodies Jesus. Everything's about Jesus with him. And um, I sat him down in my conference room, and I said, I'll show you how this church is laid out. And I wrote it out. You know, the pastors, the associate pastors, the team leaders, which are deacons, and the workers, and, you know, training and equipping, and the multi- I have this whole thing, we call it the birthday cake. And I wrote it all out for him. And he says, that's nice, where's Jesus? And I was like, you're an idiot. <laughs> and I'm not even listening to you because you don't understand because you're not doing what I do. <laughs> yeah. It's hilarious. I, I didn't say it out loud. I thought it in my heart. Same thing. I'm just getting it out today. I'm just saying, let's just have some fun. Get it all out. There are so many subtleties inside of our hearts. It's hilarious. It really actually is funny. Where's Jesus? You are an idiot. You don't even understand. The next thing is what I call the Holy Spirit's acts. You might remember that I uh, taught on Pentecost where it says in John 3, John the Baptist said, the axe is laid at the root. And any tree that doesn't bear good fruit will be cast into the fire. Therefore, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit and fire, and the winnowing fork is in Jesus' hands, and it'll separate the wheat from the chafe. And so what I talked about was he puts an axe on the inside. Really, it's a giant woodcutter, and he's going to cut down the forest of your planks inside of you. Every fortress you have built inside of you with false planks and lies and deception, he puts a giant woodcutter. His name's the Holy Spirit. And when you entered into this, this, when you enlisted into this army, and you entered into this process with Jesus, into his kingdom, and said, I want to follow him, he said, okay, I'm going to put myself on the inside of you, and we're going to get to cutting some branches, maybe giant trees, maybe mansions inside our hearts of planks. It's just another, it's the process of growth with the Lord. There's no shame or fear in any of this. What you have to understand is God loves you enough to not leave you the same. Thank God he didn't leave us the same. I could have kept going thinking that everything was okay while I still had all these hidden subtleties inside my heart. It's God's mercy that he loves you so much, he can, you never come to this place of, man, finally I'm good. Ever. It's a constant, beautiful process. And guess what the result is? It's victory. It's more in love. I'm like infatuated with my wife after nine years. Maybe 14 years. But really the right way, I'm, an, I'm enamored with her. She still makes me mad. And I manifest. But I'm a lot faster to see her the way the Lord does and to love better and forgive better than I did before. So the Holy Spirit. We can't do anything without the Holy Spirit. But God gives you the Holy Spirit as a helper an aid, a comforter, a guidance counselor, the best marriage counselor you could ever have, the best guidance counselor in how to raise your children and do relationships and love and to be more like Jesus. It's conviction. So much comes down to motives and intentions coupled with an accurate viewpoint of Jesus, the cross, and your own self. What every motive and intention of your life must be measured properly in the context of Jesus, the cross, and how he sees you. If I don't have an accurate understanding of what Jesus did on the cross, 
how he laid his life down, how he loved, if I don't have an accurate understanding of him, the cross, and how he sees me, then I will be broken in how I love and see you. And then all the while, we get angry and mad at the people that hurt us and stab us in the back while we were the ones jumping in the sack with them. Those ex-lovers, those ex-people that jacked you up, those broken relationships. And now, all of a sudden, God's showing me all these things in my past that I'm the one that actually used them, but I'm mad at them because of what they did to me. We never can harbor unforgiveness or bitterness in our hearts, ever. Most of the time, if you really look at those areas, we started it wrong to begin with, and it was about us. And all the while, we place the blame on other people. We have to lose our own opinions. We have to acknowledge and deal with our own blind spots. But how do we deal with them? That's the question, should be the question today. Okay, great. So they're there. I'm going to start to see them. God's going to highlight them. How do I deal with them? Well, first thing is, is you have to see it. If you don't see it, you can't be free. You can't be free until you can see if you don't see it, you don't know it's there. That's why this scripture, John 8, 32, is so important because John 8, 32, Jesus said, when you know the truth, the truth sets you free. So it's not a truth to you until you see it. But Jesus already forgave you when you didn't see it because he was hanging on the cross and no one was asking for forgiveness. And he said, Father, forgive them. They are completely deceived. So forgiveness has already been provided the work of the cross is done. It's there. You just have to grab hold of it. So when God begins to reveal it to you, you should be quick to repent and find forgiveness, not regret. Oh, I did some really crappy things in my past. I mean horrible things. Worst things that I would ever want to say. Horrible things. Selling drugs to teenagers and drugs to moms with kids that are addicted and terrible things that I did in my past. And I hate that I did those things, but I don't live in regret because I'm not that guy anymore. God changed me. I do, do I wish that wouldn't have happened? Yeah, I, don't, I, I would never want somebody to do what I did. But I'm not stuck in that, nor do I have regret because it ultimately became part of my story and my testimony to set other people free, but most importantly, I've been set free. So you can't be free until you can see. So here I am, I'm all like mad at you because I think you're acting out. I'll use Mark for an example. I'm like, dude, dude, you should know better. You should know better. I mean, all that God's done in your life, you should never have to battle anxiety. What's the matter with you? And your story of all that stuff that you shared on Wednesday night, I mean, like, wow, that was so simple. You should have known that the day you got born again. And in my heart, instead of rejoicing and celebrating, I don't really like the way that you said it or the way that you're acting. But let me pretend. I love you, man. Oh, I'm using this as an example. This is what we do because we're not authentic and real, owning and seeing the way Jesus sees. Now, there's no condemnation in what I'm sharing with you today. In fact, you are going to leave out of here so fired up with what I'm about to show you. So we need insight, vision, and revelation from God to open our eyes. Second, we need a proper measuring tool that accurately assesses and reveals the planks in our eyes and hearts. We need a right measuring tool. Okay, I was thinking about tools. We're, we're remodeling our garage. Uh, actually, Joe's remodeling our garage. We're not remodeling the garage. He's doing all the, and his guys are doing the work. And there's tools everywhere, right? Like tools all over the place. There's saws and tile cutters and drills and batteries. And, and I was thinking about, he's, Jesus is like everyone at one time. And the word he is the word, but the word itself in our lives does an accurate measurement and building of everything inside of us. 
which is why you can't afford ever to not be reading and spending time in this word. Remember, the night that I had my encounter with the Lord, I was felt like I didn't even know God. I was, didn't even know how to fight back. I tried and it didn't work. But then he grabbed a hold of me and he had a six-hour conversation with me because of how much of this I knew. I could converse with God because I had enough of this in me. Let me show it to you, all right? It's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Let's read this. You're going to love this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For we have the living word of God, which is full of energy, and it pierces more sharply than a two-edged sword. It will even penetrate to the very core of our being, where soul and spirit, bone and marrow meet. It interprets and reveals the true thoughts and secret motives of our hearts. There's not one person who can hide their thoughts from God. For nothing that we do remains a secret, and nothing created is concealed. But everything is exposed and defenseless before his eyes, to whom we must render an account. Now watch this. Check this out. God's word is alive. It's powerful, and it exposes everything both immaterial, which is your soul and spirit, and material, which is your joints and marrow, your physical body. Basically, God's word has the ability to uncover and expose every hidden aspect of your life and make them known. And no one can hide from him or keep a secret from him. We are defenseless, watch this. We are defenseless before his eyes, yet defensive with each other. I'm completely defenseless before God. So are you. Yet I'm defensive. First, the most defensive with my wife. That's the first person God. Marriage will make you manifest. Okay. But what God was showing me was how much of a self-preservation and I pull away. I pull away because I'm defensive. Because I'm self-preserving. We're self-preserving ourselves. Now, before God, you're defenseless. Right. Yet we become defensive with one another, right? Protecting all kinds of things. Right. My image, what you think, my reputation. What if other people really knew what we were going through? Which most of the time, no one ever knows. Just so that you know. And then God showed me this. He says, when you're defenseless with others, I become your defender. Let me say it again. I'm defenseless before God, but I'm defensive with others. But when I'm defenseless with others, God becomes my defender. You actually make room. Instead of fighting for your own rights, instead of being defensive and opinionated with motives and intentions against and picking specs out, if I love you really well, no matter what you're doing, God defends me. But we don't really think God is good enough to defend us, do we? Oh, we pretend and act like we do, and we go through the motions of hoping that quoting our scriptures will do it. God doesn't want you to just quote scriptures. He wants you to know him and know the scriptures that point to him. God becomes your defender. So you never have to protect. There's never a time you have to protect or preserve yourself. Ever. Even in marriage. And now I'm not talking about physical abuse. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about in the context of marriage. Let's take out infidelity. Which even in many times in infidelity, God will still call you to forgive. He gives you an out because of the hardness of heart. Hence Moses. But many times I'm sitting with couples and there's been infidelity and God says forgive. Not every time though. In fact, we don't have a proper understanding about God being angry. We never want to see God as, as angry. But do you know God has the emotion of anger and he's still a God of love. But he gets very angry. I loved my son, but I was upset and angry at him lying. But I still love him. See, most of us don't even have a proper understanding of the wrath of God. 
yet, and we say, how, how can the God, this be the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament? The truth is, is God never changed. Right. He just changed the rules. Because right. someone came and died in your place. His name's Jesus. So even in the Old Testament, he says, all day long I cried out to you, but you stopped up your ears and were stubborn. You did injustice to everybody over and over and over again, and you turned your back on me and worshiped idols in my face. Therefore, I was angry with you. And at some point, we're going to have to talk about that here. And that's why circumcising our hearts is so important. We have to pull back the veil. We have to get our hearts circumcised. What happens when God begins to reveal the planks in our own eyes? You know, I'm just, I'm going to show you this real fast. This wasn't in my notes, but I'm going to read this to you because this is going to rock you. Some of you are so consumed by the White House and the presidential race and the racial divide and the riots and the news, and you're consumed by what's happening in our nation. I'm going to show you something. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 1. If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me. And if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. And you shall swear the Lord lives. In truth, in judgment, and in righteousness, the nations shall bless themselves in him. And in him they shall glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts lest my fury come forth like a fire because of your evil doings. You know, let me paraphrase it for you. When God builds a strong house, he saves nations. We want to get this nation saved, and we want to see, fight for this nation, but we're not fighting for our families and our hearts and our homes and pulling back, allowing our hearts to be circumcised. We want to call out the racial divide, but maybe we have it in us. Yet we want to stop human trafficking, and nobody was celebrating the 32 children. Few people were celebrating the 32 children rescued in a trailer that were being human trafficked four days ago, and it wasn't headlines. <clears throat> and all the while, we want to fight human trafficking while there's secret porn somewhere, which is fueling human trafficking. The point is, it's not, I'm not out to crush you. I'm out to say, that's why God says, I'm taking a knife to your heart. It's called circumcision of your heart. Everything in the Old Testament was a type and shadow. So God would have the men circumcise their private parts, the most intimate place of reproduction. And today, it's your heart. And our prayer should be, circumcise my heart, Lord. That should be our prayers. Because guess what? When we raise up an army and a bride that has circumcised hearts, we will wreck nations. God says, notice the scripture was saying, if you deal with you, the nations will come. The nations already belong to the Lord, but it just may not happen the way you think it's going to happen. And we will be talking about politics in the election coming up. And we'll be talking about it in the context of shifting the moral compass of our nation. Because I have a way to make my voice heard, it's called voting. And 30 million evangelical Christians didn't vote last time, but this time we will vote. And we're going to vote according to God's design. And I'm going to say what I said last week. I don't pastor you based on whether I like you or not. I don't vote based on whether I like a candidate or not. I vote based on policy. Biblical values. And probably in both candidates, there's a lot of unbiblical things happening. But at the end of the day, I'm going to fight for life. So how do you respond when God reveals things to you? I'm going to leave you with this. How do you respond when God begins to pull back the veil? Circumcise your heart. How do you respond when God reveals the, the, the fortress of cedar, the giant mansion you built inside your heart that God wants to deal with? How do you respond? Well, I'm going to teach you. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. Take a look at this on the screen. This will bring it all home today. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 
starting at verse 9. Now I'm overjoyed, not because I made you sad, but because your grief led you to a deep repentance. Let me give you the context of this. The apostle Paul just ripped the Corinthian church a new one. That's 1 Corinthians. He was like, corrected them, rebuked them. He was loving in the midst of it, but he was pretty firm with the Corinthian church. And you know what it did to that church? It made him sad. So I said, we come to church, we don't ever want to feel sad. I hope that you feel sad. But the sadness should lead to something, not keep you there. See, I told you guys last week on a Saturday, I was so sad. I was sad because how did I live so many years this way? And God said, well, rejoice that I showed it to you. I'm like, all right, I'm going to rejoice. But watch this. So Paul's later made them, letter made them sad, but the grief led to what? What did the grief lead to? To repentance. Is it all right to feel grief? Do we like to feel grief? Should we? Over sin? Failures? Shortcomings? Wrong, wrong opinions? Fighting with our spouses? The way I treated my children? Sure. But it should never lead to shame. I'm going to show it to you, Okay. You experienced godly sorrow, and as God intended, it brought about gain for you, not loss, so that no harm has been done by us. So when you feel godly sorrow, it always prospers you, never causes a loss or harms you. But a lot of churches will preach, and pastors will preach, designed to get you to feel like garbage and leave you there. And they're doing it with the hope to get you to repent so that they can get you saved, so that you can be a part of their church. And all the while, they did their Christian duty as a pastor instead of loving you perfectly. That's why it's like, I don't always do an altar call for you to say a prayer to get born again. My hope is that you get so convicted by the Lord that you change on the inside and you cry out to him and you walk out of this church different. Because saying a prayer at an altar call doesn't save you. A heart change saves you. So you experienced godly sorrow as God intended. It brought about gain for you, not loss. So if you're feeling any godly sorrow, any grief about something you've done, rejoice. I tell people all the time, they call me up, so I feel like crap. Why can't I ever get this? Man, I'm, I hate what I keep doing. Have you ever said that? I just hate God's working in your life because when you were a sinner, you could have cared less. You had no conviction. You're like, let's just keep ladies night, night after night after night, parties, clubs. Who's going to hook up with me? Because it's all about me. And we sleep around and we club around and we do all the stuff that we did. Well, some of you never did it. My wife never did that. But she was still bad. <laughs> I don't know how, but she was bad somehow. <laughs> she needed Jesus as much as I did. That's right, that's right. Watch this in verse 10. God designed you to feel remorse over sin. In order to produce repentance that leads to what? If you don't see it and feel bad about it, you're never going to get the victory from it. The problem is, is many of us let it take us to shame and regret. But watch what the verse says right here. It says, uh, it leads to victory. Watch this in verse, as it goes on. This leaves us with no regrets, but the sorrow of the world works death. And many of our parents, like I could have forced Zion to feel sorrow to the point of death, or taught him conviction and repentance and remorse that would lead to victory so he doesn't continue doing the same thing. Now, Ultimately, until he gives his life to Jesus the way that many of us did, he's never going to be able to do it. You can't behavior modify a child. I mean, you can do a degree, but the real change, lasting change for a lifetime comes from them being born again. So all of your little kids are all going to need to get born again one day. My prayer is that you'll lead them well enough so they'll want to and you won't be a hypocritical Christian living in sin and so that they look at your life and say, if that's the way Jesus is, I don't want it. So feel guilty about it. 
because it should lead you to a change. Yeah. But don't stay there. Right. So I've said this, you know, when we, many of us, when we screw up for a week, we're like, God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's like, you don't realize what God did with your sin the minute that you repented. Right. And the fact that you're even feeling bad about it shows that God's working in your life. Yeah. So God designed us to feel godly sorrow. To feel remorse over sin because it leads to victory, leaves you with no regret. Now watch this in verse 11. Can't you see the good fruit that's come as God intended because of your remorse over sin? Now you're eager to do what's right. So because you felt bad and you repented, now I want to do the right thing. I'm eager to do what's right. What holy long, or I'm sorry, look at the indignation you experienced over what happened and how alarmed you became. So that night, I had a five-alarm fire go off in my heart. And I was alarmed. Now I have an indignation and a hatred towards the way I've been, which then forces me to want to change. And watch this. How ready you are to bring justice to the offender. Who's the offender? I'm the offender. Are there other offenders out there? Of course there are. And yes, sir, we're called to bring justice to them. But we have to first bring justice to the first offender. Your response proves that you're free of blame in this matter. You know you're free when you can tell your story. And when you tell your story, you drive a nail in the devil's coffin who's already defeated. So I self-deprecate a lot, and I just tell my wife, I have been a crappy husband. And I want to be better, but I don't probably really know how, but I'm going to learn and I'm going to try and I'm going to get in God's word and I'm not going to live in regret. I'm going to love better because that's what Jesus is calling me to do and who I want to be. So now I have no more blame. So when God reveals something to you and God's word cuts it out of you and you feel bad and you repent, what happens? No more issue. But we hold that issue over people's heads, don't we? Because if forgiveness isn't enough, we want them to feel the pain for what they did to us instead of leaving them in Jesus' hands. Let's close our eyes, please. Jesus, we want to see you and we want to know you for who you really are. And we want to become more like you. Thank you that you never leave us the same. And for everybody that's come, all my brothers and sisters in this family, my prayer is that you wouldn't leave them the same. Lord, cause us all to become more like you. Cause us to love like you so that we can help those with blind spots and even save nations. Pull back the veils of our own hearts. The subtleties, the things that we couldn't even see without you. Lord, we want to love so much better lay our lives down for one another esteem others better than ourselves and outdo ourselves in honor and respect thank you that you never gave up on us that you love us so much and you love everybody here thank you god for true conviction true godly sorrow that causes us to turn away to think differently to love better and to become more like you as sons and daughters. Thank you that we have the victory by what you doing. And I thank you so much, Lord, for opening our eyes and our hearts to see the width, the depth, the height, and the, the magnitude of your love for us. Measure us, Lord. And See if there's any anxious way in us, Lord. And if there is, cut it out. We don't want it anymore. And I thank you, Lord, for perfect rest, perfect peace in our marriages, in our homes, in our single lives, in our jobs, in our employees, our coworkers, with our children. Thank you, Lord, that you never give up on us. And anything in us that's not of you, cut it out and tear it out. We want to know you, Lord, and we want to be like you. 
Lord, I ask that you would give the spirit of wisdom and revelation to everybody here to know you the way that you really are, but to also see the areas in our lives that are not like you and that need to be cut out and that in the process, we wouldn't fall into shame and condemnation or regret, but we rejoice that you're making us to look and be more like you for who you really are. And we pray for our nation, Lord. Save our nation, God. Save our nation. Cause us to truly be united under God with real freedom and liberty. And I thank you, Lord, that you've made us a head, not a tail. You've given us the authority and the power to change cultures, to change cities, states, and nations. Thank you that our country belongs to you. And I thank you, God, that you've, for such a time as this, put us here in the body of Christ, Texas. Show us, Lord, how to truly love and become one so that we can transform and look like you. Transform us to look like you. Thank you for your mercy and your kindness. And I bless every one of you with great dreams and visions. I bless you with confident love and peace and that you would enjoy the process even when it hurts. In Jesus' name, amen. I love y'all. Go and love more.